Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, on this day of resurrection, we pray in the words of Emerson that our faith should blend with light of the rising and setting suns, with the flying cloud, the singing bird, and the breath of flowers. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be lifted up to you in joy this day. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. A lot has happened between last Sunday and this Sunday. Tiger Woods has pulled off what is probably the greatest comeback in sports history, at least by an individual. Almost the resurrection of a career, a body, perhaps a moral and spiritual life. One of the most revered cathedrals in the world has burned charring but not diminishing its architectural witness to the Christian faith, to Western civilization, and to the citizens and lovers of France. The long-awaited Mueller report has been released, leading some to respond with the excitement of exoneration, some with the confirmation of chaos and corruption, many with the familiarity of fatigue, and most with the sense that few minds will be changed. Within the past few hours in Sri Lanka, Christians gathered for Easter worship and tourists for travel met death or injury in multiple bombings. And within our own congregation, In addition to the joys and and concerns that occur among our members and friends each week, one of our members has intensified her ferocious fight with the leukemia treatment aftermath at Johns Hopkins Hospital on behalf of the twins, now 11, 
whom as a single parent she adopted from Russia eight years ago, brought into her home, brought into our church. She and they are in our prayers, in our care, for they belong to us and we to them in the covenant of baptism. A lot has happened in our church, in our nation, in our world these past seven days. To say nothing of the betrayal and arrest, trial and crucifixion of Christ since his palm-laden entry into Jerusalem last Sunday. But we are here today gathered in a sanctuary around an event that transcends the meaning of the word event. If we are at all familiar with the Christian faith, we hear this event narrated in a way that we have heard it narrated nearly every year since we were exposed to the faith. If we are new to faith, if we are curious about faith, if we are here out of loyalty to someone important to us for whom this day is important to them, the narrative of this event that transcends event may be new to us. But familiar or new, perhaps we have come today with ears prompted to listen more deeply than we have listened before, hearts hoping against hope for a hope we have not known in years. The telling of this event today has several chapters and scenes. In the opening scene, which is what we read today, the central action revolves around an empty tomb. It is the first day of the week at early dawn, and women who have been with Jesus Christ all along come to the tomb, taking spices that they have prepared as part of his burial. When they arrive at the tomb, they find that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. But then when they go in, which is an act of courage, they do not find the body. And they are perplexed. Perplexed about the movement of the stone. Perplexed about the absence of the body. Their perplexity reminds us that the empty tomb alone does not prove much of anything. The empty tomb may be evidence that the body has been stolen and thus desecrated. Matthew, in his gospel, takes up this possibility in order to rebut it. The empty tomb may also be evidence that the people responsible for the burial have simply made a terrible mistake, placed the body in the wrong tomb, misdirected the women concerning where to go with their carefully prepared spices. In the mid-1990s, literally one or two days after I received my first cell phone, I was scheduled to do a graveside service for an elderly member of the congregation I was serving at the time in Iowa. All of her children had long since grown up and moved away, but they had returned to the town in which they had grown up and in which she still lived to bury her in the family plot. I had met with them six or eight weeks earlier. 
I drove to the cemetery at the appointed time. I found my way to the gravesite. I noticed a handful of family members who were present, but I saw no signs of a casket, an open grave, a tent, chairs, or even a funeral director. Now, I had been in that town long enough to know that that particular funeral home handling this burial did not have the most stellar reputation. But neither did I know until that moment how worthily that had, they had earned that reputation. <laughs> I stepped away from the family. I whipped out my brand new cell phone and opened it, if you will remember those days. And as you will recall, since Google was not even in anybody's mind at the time, this time, I called something that was called directory assistance. <laughs> I got the funeral director on the line, and once I told him the beginnings of the situation we were in, I put my hand over the phone so that I could protect the family from hearing the expletives deleted that he was expulsing in response to the news. I came back to the family. Uh, the funeral home had it on their calendar for tomorrow. But they're on the way. They're on the way. In a few minutes, sure enough, a pickup truck and a hearse came speeding through the winding roads of the cemetery. They screeched to a halt where we were. The funeral director got out, his mouth now washed out with soap. <laughs> now, how many of you have heard that expression before? Raise your hands. Okay, all right. It's sort of from my generation, but you know what it means. That's what your mom used to threaten whenever your language wasn't cried up to what it should be. I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. The funeral director had a clean mouth by now. So, I've lost my place. <laughs> I don't know, where'd this thing go? Gee whiz, I know the story. I don't know. Okay, here we go, here we go. Yeah, here we go, here we go. So, two burly men get out of the truck. They lift the casket out of the hearse. They placed it near where we were standing. And for the only time in my life, I conducted a graveside service over a body before a grave had been dug. A body without a tomb, a tomb without a body, mistakes are sometimes made. But the empty tomb may also mean that the one buried has been raised from the dead, which is what happens in this event that transcends event. When the women perplexed step into the tomb, they see rather suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stand beside them. Their reaction then moves from perplexity to terror. They do the, the only thing they know to do, which is to bow their faces to the ground as one might do in the presence of a God or in the presence of one by whom one was expecting to be killed. But the two men in dazzling clothes are neither gods nor killers. Why do you look for the living among the dead, they ask. He is not here, but he is risen. The women are stunned and silent. 
So the two men in dazzling clothes continue. Remember, they say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man would be arrested and crucified and on the third day rise again. Remember. Remember how he told you. Then the women remember Christ's words. And returning from the tomb, they tell this to all the eleven and to all the rest. Perhaps the most important words the men in dazzling clothes speak to the women may not be, ironically, he is risen. Rather, the most important words may be, remember. Remember how he told you. The reason these words are so important is that they are instructive. They chart the way the women can come to trust the message that Christ has risen. And as such, they form a way that we can come to such trust ourselves. You see, for these women, as for many of us in this room, belief in the resurrection is not something that drops down from heaven as an unexpected miracle, miraculous as it is. Belief in the resurrection is not simply a feel-good fairy tale ending to an uplifting story. Belief in the resurrection is not a reversal of fortune. It's not an unexpected inheritance, a winning lottery ticket, a long-standing sibling suddenly showing up at our door. On the contrary, our belief in the resurrection is a trust that grows out of and is connected to what we have come to know of God in Christ over the course of our lives, over the course of our faith. Thus, the way we come to trust that Christ is risen is to remember all that we have heard, all that we have learned about, all that we have experienced of Christ in the church and in the world during the time we have been a follower, whether that is all of our lives or very, very recently. In my experience, our ability to trust in the resurrection, trust in the resurrection and to live both in its power and toward its promise grows out of what we learn day in and day out, seeking to follow Christ, seeking to do the right thing, seeking to be a part of the church, singing the hymns, listening to the sermons, working alongside others in the church kitchen or the soup kitchen, slowly but surely developing relationships in the community of faith with people that we can respect and trust. Remember, the men in dazzling clothes say, remember how he told you. It is the memories that we form that form the trust we develop. So even if this is your first time in this congregation or in any church, I ask you that as flawed and abusive, as petty and exclusive, as quarrelsome and intrusive as any religious organization seems to be able to be, come back. 
Come back to worship. Come back to study. Come back next week. And the next week. And the next week. Take it slowly. Patiently. Persistently. Over time, you will find yourselves hearing words Jesus said while he was still in Galilee. And soon you will realize and recognize that you have heard those words before. And they will begin to mean something to you. You will remember. And what you remember will bring you life. I promise. Now back to Tiger Woods. <laughs> Concerning his win at the Masters last Sunday, Washington Post columnist David Vandraley writes, At 43, Tiger Woods is old in golf years. The rash power of his youthful swing has taken its toll through four back surgeries. So when he stepped up to the 12th hole on Sunday, Two strokes behind, with seven holes to go, he faced the hole that is the most famous test on the most famous course in America. His dream of winning another major title seemed just beyond his grasp. If ever a moment, this columnist continues, cried out for heroics, surely it was this moment. Take aim at that seductive patch of grass that marks the twelfth hole. Gamble, throw caution to the wind, stick the ball so, so close to the hole that the soft thud of the impact shakes up the entire tournament. Half the players in the hunt for the title tried such heroics and each fell short, ending in the water. But Woods played conservatively, knowledgeably, prudently, taking aim at the big white beach and landing the ball safely on the green between the two traps. Two putts later, he walked away with a share of the lead and a clear path to victory. I was, just trying, I was just trying to plod my way around the course, he said later in an interview. The columnist said, as a young man, he was anything but plodding. He slashed, he whipped, he crushed, he conquered. But now he was content to be patient, to control his emotions. The defining shot of his life was the shot he didn't attempt, the risk he was prudent not to take. When the casket was finally in place and we gathered around it as a family for the graveside, I read words of a prayer that I have read, I think, at every funeral I have ever conducted 
deep in the human heart is an unquenchable trust that life does not end with death, that the Father who made us will care for us beyond the bounds of our earthly vision just as he has cared for us in this earthly world. I include that prayer in every funeral service. Of all the promises I make as a pastor, this is the one of which I am most sure. Life does not end with death. I have not come to that level of trust from men dressed in dazzling white who dropped down from heaven and spoke to me at an empty tomb. Neither have I come to such trust from any heroics that I have performed on the golf course, which I don't play, or in life, which I do. I have come to such trust only through a lifetime of plodding around the church, listening to the words of Christ, taught, preached, sung, read, studied, meditated upon. In a large church I was in as a child, in a small church I was in as a teenager, in four churches I've served as an adult, absorbing the faith from the people around me. Remember how he told you, the man said. Remember how he told you. Remember. 